Welcome to the Marigold Teachers Podcast. We're back with more ideas to help teachers like you embrace well-being, kick emotional exhaustion to the curb, and thrive personally and professionally. We're your plant pot of positivity. Oh, I like a plant pot of positivity. That's awesome. Uh, I'm David. And I'm Rebecca. We're teachers, coaches and creators with over 25 years between us in the classroom. And in this episode, we're looking at exactly why busy isn't better. We're sharing our experiences and offering you some strategies for how to work smarter instead of harder. Ah, let's jump in. So in this episode, we're thinking really about what it's like to be busy as a teacher, which sounds a bit nuts, really, because like every single teacher I've ever met throughout my entire career has been busy. I don't think I've ever known one teacher that's just had not enough to do, right? It's kind of hardwired into our DNA to be busy. And the job is so overwhelming in scope and in, it, in its demands that it's natural to feel like you're just too busy for words when you're a teacher. So I don't think we're trying to suggest that you can be less busy in terms of having less to do. I think really what we're going to be talking about here is actually, are there processes? Are there ways whereby as a busy teacher, you can minimize the amount of unnecessary work that you do and maximize the amount of really valuable work that you do? Because I feel like for most teachers, that's the holy grail, right? That idea of the, all of the work that I do can I make it count? Can I make it of real value? And can I stop knocking myself out for the things that aren't? And there's different ways we can do that. But I, I've always been a busy teacher. Rebecca, I know you've always been a busy teacher too. Uh, are there times when you've felt particularly overloaded or are there times when you've really struggled to, to manage your workload in different ways? Well, as we said at the start, it's not about the fact we are not ever going to be not busy. And it is about the different types of busy we are. I've, I've read recently in a, in a couple of articles how many how many questions we get asked in a day, and they seem ridiculous. But then you realise how many kids ask you for something in lesson, and how many emails you get, and how many requests you get, and you realise that your brain is constantly on all the time. But that is a different type of busy, and sometimes that's just ad hoc. You kind of deal with them in the moment, and they're not actually leading to your load particularly. They make you feel tired at the end of the day, but there you're given circumstances of your day that's that's just going to happen but I feel constantly busy it's something I've really struggled with and I think it may have been the subject that we've taught does add to that that's a lot of different hours that's a lot of different a lot of different pressures on your working day but also having taught in an English department I felt constantly like I couldn't finish my list of jobs because whatever I did was going to impact someone whether that was me, which was completely fine in my mind, my colleagues, or more importantly, the students. I felt like I could not do something because it would impact them directly. But that might have meant that I wasn't really in the zone in the lesson because I'm constantly thinking about what I've got to do next. How do you feel about trying to manage your things to do? Yeah, I think that idea of there are so many things to do that it makes it really hard to be in the moment. It makes it really hard to be kind of mindful is critical. I think there's a huge difference, certainly for me, between being busy and being productive. I could spend hours being busy at stuff that was a, <laughs> of no value, well, not the least bit productive, but it made me feel in the moment like I was being really busy, which was good. 
But in terms of the way I used to think about being busy, there were a few things that I allowed to trick me into the way that I was thinking. And one of them was, I always used to think that to be a really good teacher, you had to give everything. It was kind of like sacrificial. You weren't being a really good teacher unless you were 100% on it every single day and gave and gave and gave and gave and gave. And that is unsustainable. You know, you might be able to achieve that for a bit, but ultimately you can't keep going at that pace the whole time. And and you're not really expected to. It's only the expectations that we put onto ourselves as dynamic and diverse teachers where we want to have that effect for the kids that we work with. So that was one thing. I also used to think that if I wasn't busy, somehow I was slacking. Somehow I wasn't living up to the demands of my job or I wasn't doing it right somehow. Like I had to be super busy the whole time to be effective. And I kind of feel like that probably affected my well-being, my mental health. I, I definitely think it affected the way I viewed the world. I would quite often sacrifice doing all kinds of other stuff for my job when probably I didn't need to because... I felt as though that was what was expected of me, even if it wasn't. It's a really complex thing and not everyone's going to have it to that degree. But for me, I really kind of fell into that, that kind of trap, really, where if I wasn't being busy, I wasn't doing my job well. And the older I've got, I think, and the more used to teaching I've got and the more care I take of myself, the more I realize that's just absolute nonsense. Oh, I think you might have hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, I think that's a mixture between my own perception of what people think I'm doing or maybe I care far too much about what people think of me. And I think a lot of people feel like that generally. Teachers definitely do. People say that teaching is a lifestyle and that goes into the whole all or nothing attitude. And you can't live your life as an all or nothing. And it's okay to do something with your time out in school and outside of school that isn't work. Um just because you're having a break or you're doing something else or you're actually planning around making sure you're more productive. It's it's completely okay. I think you have to be okay with that yourself and that maybe takes a little bit more time or it takes a little bit more time if you're in a school full of walnut trees that are telling you they've done this, they've done that. I spent my whole weekend making this plan. You haven't done yours yet. Well, no, actually, it's not due for a few months and I have other things I need to focus on and I have myself to focus on. So the community around you, or lack of community sometimes, can make that really difficult to do as well. So It's interesting, when we're talking about a staff community within a school, and there are always going to be those dominant characters that stand out, and somehow they kind of, for me at least, they would define the community, the ethos of that community, even if it was unspoken, you know, because very often the words that a school uses to describe their values is utterly different to the lived experience of the staff in that school. So I don't really feel as though the staff that I have worked with have had that kind of toxic positivity thing of, look how amazing I am compared to you. You need to keep up with me. I always looked at it from the perspective of setting an example. I always used to look at it from the point of view of being thankful to have a job. So I want to have shown that I'm great and I'm really, you know, committed to my job. I think that sense of commitment and showing that I was committed was really important. I can say in my teaching career, at some points I felt like I'm going to be sacked, I'm going to lose my job. I've done nothing other than be a great teacher. Toot my own trumpet. I'm not bad. I might have done something a bit late or I have to email and say, I'm not quite finished my reports yet. 
that sense of fear that you are doing amazing in day to day, or even if you're just doing okay, you're still getting through each day, you're still being a great teacher, and yet you're still fearful that if you haven't been as productive or you're not keeping yourself busy or someone looks around and might see that you've popped your head up to have a breather might be a reason why you don't have a job that can say a lot about a teaching profession can't it yeah and it's also made me think there is another way of looking at it which is you just talked about if you pop your head up and someone sees that you don't have something to do they'll give you something else to do (laughs) so partly keeping busy is all about managing workload and not being given more stuff just as much as kind of not wanting to appear lazy, I suppose. The same vibe when you say, I just want to show I can do something. Or maybe we're thinking about the next point in our career and we want to try something different. There's so many different strands in teaching that you immediately say yes to everything. Well, I spent most of my early career not realizing I could say no. It didn't occur to me to say no if someone asked me to do something extra or more or just added to my workload. I just thought that was a sign of their faith in me, which is totally naive, or that was just what was expected and everyone else was doing the same, which of course they weren't. And I didn't know that. So I just spent my whole time being busy. That's it. And we've all got different types of busy, different subjects, different workloads, different pressures, different teaching timetables, different weighting of things. And someone's busy looks completely different to someone else's busy, but we all feel like we can't stop. How do we fix it? Yeah, that's the thing we're going to talk about here. So just to clarify, we know that we're all busy. It's how we manage the busyness that's the important thing. So we've got a few suggestions, uh, things that you and I have found useful in the past, things that are well proven to help people, but would really, really work well for teachers. The first one of these is something called the, the Pareto Principle, which I found revolutionary when I discovered it, which was across the board, generally speaking, in life, 20% of what you do leads to 80% of the outcomes, which is kind of extraordinary when you think about it. Now, obviously there's non-negotiables. There's things you've got to, you've got to do that take you beyond that. But like, as a guide, I found that wonderful because I was like, okay, well, I've done the key things. I've done the, the important things. I've done the things that move the needle. I've done the things that tangibly impact upon my students' progress. The rest of it's busy work. The rest of it I can leave. I don't have to do. And it's that difference between feeling as though you've got to do absolutely every single thing and feeling as though you can identify the things that are critical and vital and valuable and focus on doing those first. That was a pretty big breakthrough, I guess, for me when I discovered that. I love reminding myself of that, David, especially when I'm doing something that I know is a very time consuming So I find that really useful in kind of marking an assessment. I get really into going a full deep dive, potentially, if my week has consisted of a lot of year 11s doing a lot of practice questions, for example, especially this time of year, it's kind of mock time. They're all churning them out. I can't sit there and mark every single thing and still have any capacity left to do anything else when we all teach. The majority of us, loads of different year groups, so many different lessons, and you've got other jobs to do. So I've been making sure that I pick out the ones they need a bit more support on or will break up a question that we've all done together. I've just finished my mock papers and I initialed things as I went because they know my structure. I just initialed and then I wrote a group feedback sheet so that they could all use that. And it was so much quicker. And do you know what? I have to say, I probably, as one of those kids, would feel better because I get guilt and then I overmark and you can't see their paper 
through what I'm writing. And that's not useful. So picked a key bit, made sure I had some group feedback. They're going to be less stressed opening that page going, oh, my goodness me. Of course, I marked the whole mark paper, but the questions leading up to it, we were all struggling on the same ones. So let's focus on those. Exactly it. And like we've got mocks next week. And one of my jobs this weekend is to make a, a marking cover sheet. But what we've decided we're going to do is we're going to put all of the, the elements on the cover sheet, all of the likely areas where students will encounter problems or challenges or not quite get something right. And we're going to make a whole bunch of them tick boxes to start with so that they're going to get this cover sheet. They're going to get a whole bunch of like, did this well, didn't do this well, blah, 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 blah. And then there'll be space for individual feedback. But we won't have to regurgitate the same stuff for every student. They get the same level of feedback. They get the same sense of awareness of what it is they need to do to improve. It takes us a quarter of the time. So that's a really pertinent uh, example. Definitely. The other one for me was emails when it comes to this kind of whole 2080 thing. For many years, I made it a, a mission to just answer or at least deal with every single email I received because I felt it was like impolite <laughs> to not. It was a bit like a, you know, someone sent, writes you a, a letter and you don't write them back. You know, it was that kind of level of, of delusion, really, of the fact that you, you, you've got to make sure that you actually respond to every single email. At the peak of when I was managing a few different roles as well as teaching, I was probably getting 150, 160 emails a day. I mean, unsustainable to try and respond to all of those. And those weren't just circulars. They were actual emails to me, you know. Now, you can't manage that level of, of interaction. But I learned how to use the the software well enough to be able to prioritize things, to be able to ignore things, to be able to simply move things to somewhere where I could deal with them later if I needed to. I got over that idea that I had to absolutely reply to every single thing. The rest I could drop and it was okay. But again, that was pretty revelatory. And I feel like sometimes I say things that everyone else goes, duh. <laughs> but it's just, for me, some of those things were really life-changing uh, and really valuable. Do you know what? It's again, thinking what people might think of you if they're the ones that receive whatever or don't receive whatever. I would like to personally thank the computer gods of Microsoft um, who left the little thumbs up, thumbs down, love hearts on Office because I reply so much with a thumbs up because I can see it in the corner. They can see it. And if it's just, are you sure that date's okay or... So-and-so is going to come see you later. Yeah, fine. Don't need anything. I've started using the pre-programmed responses at the bottom, but they sound a little bit cold. But if that means I have started a sentence and then go, thanks, uh, that's fine by me because it's still doing exactly what it needs to do. I'm interrupting this episode to ask you a favour. Now, we know that teachers around the world enjoy this podcast and we are so proud to offer ongoing actionable support and advice to educators worldwide. Now, if you're one of those teachers and you haven't already liked and subscribed to this podcast, then please take a moment now, if you can, to do just that. It makes a huge difference to our reach and it helps us to keep this podcast free so that more teachers can be part of the Marigold community. And for both of us, thank you. All right, let's get back to the episode. They do not need to be overthought. And it's such an easy one to use as a distraction method too, because your inbox 
can be crazy. I've tried really hard, David, to get those folders underway, but I can't. I use the search bar a lot in my inbox. But do you know what? If that means I find things really quickly because I'm really good at using it like that, why should I go, oh, everyone's going to judge me if they open my inbox. I know exactly where everything is when I search for it. That's, that's all that matters. I still make folders in the left-hand panel of every one of my tutees, every one of my colleagues. That's where I store stuff. But as long as it works for you, that's all right, isn't it? It's the first thing I do to, to procrastinate is go, ooh, my inbox looks a little bit heavy. I have made the folders in September. They started going in there. I must go back now. Oh, look, I've cleared seven months worth, but have I done the thing I need to do? No, no, I haven't. And for me, those other things were quite often things like making resources. And that's another area where I would spend a long time making a resource look extraordinary and gorgeous and, and, and formatting it. Just spend hours and hours and hours building something rather lovely that served the same functional purpose as something which was dead simple. I would have taken a third of the time. But again, it, it was as though it was a, a sort of a personal mission that my brand had to be awesome. The, the students don't see a difference very often in that. You can spend ages making something look pretty, or you can spend five minutes just putting the right stuff down. It has the same effect, the same impact in terms of learning. Uh, for those students. So that that's another area where I've definitely switched tracks and become a bit more efficient. I've now embraced AI to make my PowerPoint slides and things like that and formatting, slowly making its way, because if it can decide what my slide looks like and I go, that looks fine, I'm not going to fuss. Such a time saver. So good. Okay. So our second point when it comes to working a bit smarter and not quite so hard is to do with this idea that, I think it was from Mark Twain, so it goes back away, uh, but it's the idea of eating the frog. That simply means do the hardest thing, do the unpleasant thing, like eating a frog that you wouldn't want to do, do that first. And if you do that, everything else that follows will naturally have a degree of efficiency or pleasure or be less stressful uh, than if you hadn't done the hard thing first. I think I always instinctively knew that was right. For me, it wasn't until I, I read about that phrase and that approach where it kind of clicked. And so now I still go, well, okay, this is the difficult job or the time consuming job or the thing I'm less interested in or whatever it is, whatever makes it negative compared to another job. And I do that first. I prioritize that thing. And it is true that the rest then feels less like work and more like pleasure because you've got the rubbish thing out of the way first. I'm so bad at that, David. I I really, 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 really need to get better at this. I am an avoider. That's the best bit. I know I am, and I'm trying desperately to swap this round. And I think you can tell through this podcast our different years of experience, actually. I've got quite a lot under my belt, but you can see where we are in our, in our teaching journeys. I love hearing that you can feel like it's part of your working process now, and I can feel like it's beginning to be. I used this in an example the other day, actually which was lovely. I had an ECT come up to me in the cold in a fire drill. We were silent, we promise. And she ran up to me and she said, you'll be really proud of me, Rebecca. I was like, why? She because I told my head of department that I'm happy to mark mock papers, but I won't be giving them back tomorrow because I have already structured my plans and I know what I need to mark now and I need more time than that. So they'll be getting the rat next week when I've planned to do them. I'm happy to take some, but I need more time. I said, that's good. That's great. We've been talking about scheduling and planning and 
making sure she knows how long she stopped to do things. Having thought that we were talking about this this weekend, the first thing I said to her was, you know, though, if it's your worst job or it's going to take the longest, that you're still going to end up doing it first. And you probably should, because otherwise they're still going to be done the night before, aren't they? And she went, oh, yeah. Oh, I could shuffle that, actually. So I'm still not giving them back till next week, but I might still do them tonight. I was like, good. They won't loom over you then, will they? And uh, she was just like smiling and nodding happily, thinking, oh, well, I'll still take them. I still might do them, but I haven't got the pressure of having to give them back until I need them to. But at least they'll be done. Exactly. And it's that point of stuff looming over you that is so powerful because I, for many years, found it difficult to stop thinking about all the stuff I had to do, even when I wasn't at work or when I wasn't doing it. You know, that idea of it's there in your head the whole time. You've got all this stuff you've got to do kind of filled up my head a lot. It doesn't anymore because I know how to let it not do that. But that idea of the frog principle of doing that hard thing first just means that works in harmony with my approach to thinking about work now, which is that I don't let it impact me when I'm, when I'm not actively engaged with it, you know, and I know that I've done the difficult thing. Or I know that I've done the time consuming thing. And I'm not going to be worrying about whether I'm going to get something done in time. And again, that goes to make life a lot healthier and happier. I'm really glad that that's something that means that your life outside your teaching is clearer and happier and more focused on you. Um, it makes a massive difference. That feeling and that darkness when you have a time pressure adding to them with something is really, really difficult. Um, I often have a lot of things on the harder job to do list might not actually be the job itself which sounds really odd but it might be asking someone to do a bit of it or to delegate it because actually for me that's the hardest bit it isn't the task itself but I'm still eating my frog it's still pissed off and eventually I'm gonna have to ask them and I'm still thinking about it and it's still taking up mental capacity so give them more time as well so I've been getting better at that which has been really useful actually perfect and it sets precedent or it sets a reality for other staff and also for students in terms of when they will get work back or when things will be done in a time frame that's actually reasonable. I'm, I mentioned staff culture earlier on and that those are the kinds of small acts that can ultimately begin to shift a staff culture within a school in a positive way. Yeah, absolutely. And our last topic, our last kind of way of looking at things is slightly broader. But for me, it's indicative of the fact that no one taught me this and I had to learn it for myself, which, which sounds so crazy, but it's so true, is the idea that prioritizing your productivity is, is really critical. It's really important. So whether that means making a list of goals in the order that you want to achieve them, or whether that means instinctively knowing which jobs you're going to have to do first in order to get them done, or whether it means knowing when to delegate and knowing not when to delegate. Sometimes it's going to mean saying no, but that idea of just being able to prioritize your own work without somebody else telling you how to do it or what to do gives you a sense of agency. Perhaps it gives you a sense of control. I was always pretty good at managing my workload. I got everything done. That's just because I worked myself to death. I could have been a bit better, a lot better at prioritizing things and understanding that not every single job had the same value attached to it and then doing those jobs accordingly. That was a bit of a big game changer for me as well. I've often shared my prioritizing, actually. I did it 
last week, actually, my line manager wanted something. Their email had no urgency in what it needed. It was just, at some point, I need this. And I saw that as, ah, oh, quick, send something. You'll need it right away. And so I don't know if it felt like I was apologizing that I was telling him he was not getting it yet. But actually, looking back on it, and I'm one of those people who rereads emails, I looked back and sharing what I prioritized felt really nice. I immediately thought it was apologetic. It's not at all. I said, actually, I have some marking to do on this assessment this week. So I'll probably get that to you by the following Wednesday because I have a whole day where I can look at that on the Tuesday. And I said, that works for me. Not, will that work for you? Is that going to be okay? It's That's what's going to work for me. And actually, I think that doesn't impact him at all. I got a thumbs up. That's that's what he needs. <laughs> and do you know what? He's prioritised his time too because that he went, cool, she got it in hand. Happy days. Thank you very much. Yeah. So like both ways, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. See, that's, that's part of prioritising as well, isn't it? And that email etiquette thing of suddenly a new job is requested of you. There's a new task. How do you factor that into next week, the next 10 days worth of planning and responsibilities that you've got? You know, do you just drop everything? Do you allow yourself to drop stuff and, and respond to new things immediately, leaving hundreds of things half done? Or have you got the experience, the confidence, the inner knowledge, I suppose, to say, I won't do that yet. I see that it's there. I trust that there will be a point at which I will be able to achieve it. Otherwise, you just found yourself madly scrabbling from one unfinished job to another unfinished job. And that can be a huge cause, I think, of kind of turmoil and of stress and, and can raise your anxiety as a teacher while you're still trying to deal with all of the emotional exhaustion and the difficulties of being in multiple classes with multiple children. It all adds to the discord. And that big thing about saying no, it, you have to look after yourself first. It's completely okay to be delegating things or, as we've said previously, it's okay to get help when you feel like you can't manage that. And it might not be managing the task, but it is fine to be learning from other people. Go to your marigold if you want or go to someone who you know is experienced and say, I've got so much to do. That's what that ECT had said to me. I, I don't know where I meant to start. And her mentor was great and I was useful and she could have lots of different ways of looking at it. And you're allowed to do that. We're all so good at learning. We all love to learn. That's why we're teachers. So go and ask. Say, I really don't know how you managed to do those reports on time and get your work marked and do this. And yet you still seem to have a smile on your face. Ask because people have got some really lovely strategies and our ones will probably be up there. Absolutely. We are all works in progress. We're all learning as we go. None of us have got all of the right answers, but lots of us have got some of the answers. And the more we share them, the richer our lives will be, I think. So just to clarify then, we're talking about 20% of what you do equals 80% of your most important outcomes. We're talking about doing the hard things first and letting the rest follow. And we're talking about managing and prioritizing your productivity. And that might mean saying no, might mean delegating, might mean structuring the things that you have to do in the order that works best for you. And that might not be the way that works best for your colleague down the hall, but that doesn't matter. We're all individuals and we all need to know ourselves a little bit more. Does that sum it up? Sounds perfect to me. We're at the end of this week's episode. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your support. And thank you for everything you do day in and day out. Our teaching can be tough. It 
can be lonely. It can be exhausting. So if no one else says it, thank you for being a teacher. You are inspirational. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll probably enjoy the next one too. And the next one. And the next one. So why don't you like and subscribe if you can? And while you're at it, sign up to our free weekly newsletter, The Flourishing Teacher's Field Guide. It's packed full of tried and tested tips for teacher well-being. Until then, remember that the most important obligation is to yourself. You're epic. And we want you to stay that way. So we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>